It's good to see everyone here tonight. Anytime I stand up in an assembly like this, I consider it a great honor, consider it a great privilege, and it's a very serious responsibility on my behalf tonight to lead you in a study of God's Word. Appreciate the prayers on my behalf, not only tonight, but throughout this gospel meeting, that I can show you things from God's Word that are true, first and foremost, and that are convicting and edifying to you and help build faith in your heart and help you clearly understand what God wants each and every one of us to do. Happy for the presence of those who might be visiting tonight. If you're here and you consider yourself a visitor, we welcome you. We're glad you're here. We hope you feel comfortable and at home. And we hope you can come back as often as you possibly can and worship God with us in spirit and in truth here at Northwest Church of Christ. Tonight I want to talk a little bit about choices. You know, life is a series of small but very, very important choices. And I can look back over my life and I can see times when I made good choices. I can look over, back over my life and I can see times when I made bad choices. Behind every choice that we make in life, deep down there's an underlying question behind that choice. For example, unless you came to the assembly tonight barefooted, and I don't think any of you did, you woke up this morning and at some point in the day you made the choice to put your shoes on. Now you probably had, if you're like me, at least two, maybe three pairs of shoes to choose from. And somewhere deep in your mind, you know, you had to ask yourself the question, am I going to wear my sneakers? Am I going to wear my sandals? Am I going to wear my boots? And you made that choice. We all did. How many questions like that do you think you ask yourself each and every day? How many small but important choices do each of us make every single day of our life? You ever thought about that? Maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand, I don't know, maybe ten thousand if you, you got a lot going on in your life. Now stop and think about how many choices you'll make in your lifetime. You make a lot of choices every day and just add those days of your lifetime up. That's that's a lot of choices that you and I are faced with during our time here on earth. The most important choice that you're ever going to make in your life is where you choose to spend eternity. And the underlying question behind that choice is this. Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the most important question that you or I or anyone could ever ask themselves. And tonight I want to use the Bible to help you work through this question for your own self. Now, I'm going to ask for your heart and your mind and your undivided attention for a few moments as we go to God's Word. 
And it's easy in a big crowd like this to think, well, you know, he's talking to everyone around me, but he's not really talking to me. No, tonight I'm talking to each and every one of you. I want you to listen carefully. I want you to carefully consider. Open your heart. Open your mind. Ask yourself this question and be honest. Be honest with yourself tonight. Have you truly obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to show you why it's so important that we answer this question honestly for ourselves. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. If you back up to verse 4 earlier in this chapter, you know, the Bible talks about the persecution and the tribulations that the church at Thessalonica was suffering and having to endure. And Paul wants to give them words of comfort and hope and encouragement. So he tells them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense, where recompense means to give a, a just reward, to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. He says, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, it says, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You know, this verse here talks to us and teaches us about the return of Christ. Christ is coming back someday. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He took that life to the cross and died for your sins and mine. They took him down off that cross and put him in a tomb, but you know, God brought him forth triumphantly from the grave. Jesus is not dead today. He's alive. In Acts chapter 1, it teaches that he spent about 40 days with his disciples teaching them things about the kingdom, and then he ascended back to God the Father. And that's where he's at tonight, at the right hand of God, alive, making intercession for you and for me. But he's coming back someday. And when he does, this part of the Bible teaches us that when he comes, he will take vengeance on a specific group of people. He says, them that know not God and them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the words the Bible uses there to describe Christ's vengeance. He said, it says, he's coming in verse 8 in flaming fire. Flaming fire. It says there in verse 9 that he's coming to bring a punishment to these two groups of people, and that punishment will be a punishment of everlasting destruction, in verse 9. Do you see why it's so important that we ask this question of ourselves and get an honest answer? Have you truly obeyed the gospel of Christ? Because if you haven't, if you haven't truly obeyed the gospel of Christ, this is all that you can look forward to when Jesus comes back someday. Flaming fire, taking vengeance, everlasting destruction. That's why it's so important that we understand where we stand in the sight of God and we understand whether or not we've truly obeyed the gospel. The answer to this question you see on the screen behind me 
has eternal consequences for each and every one of us. Where we spend eternity depends on how we honestly answer this question. Let's look into this a little bit more by asking the question, what is the gospel? The Bible tells us that we ought to obey the gospel if we want to escape the punishment of the Lord. But what is the gospel? The Bible gives us a very clear understanding of what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul writes to Christians in Corinth and he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. He says, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice here, Paul says, I'm going to declare the gospel to you. He says, I've already preached it to you. He says, you've already received it and you're standing in it. You're saved by that gospel if you keep it in memory. We've got to keep the gospel in memory even after we've believed it and obeyed it. We need to keep it in memory. And then he begins to declare unto them that gospel in verse 3. He says, this is the gospel that I received. He says that Christ died... He was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. It's not complicated. It's very, very simple. And you know, these Christians here at Corinth were saved by that gospel. You and I can be saved by that very gospel. And I would tell you tonight, there's no other gospel, no other doctrine, no other teaching that can save you and me. You see, when you really stop and think about what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus means, He left the throne room of heaven to come to this poor and pitiful place that we call earth. He came into this world in one of the meekest and lowliest of manners. He lived a life with the same struggles, the same temptations, the same challenges that you and I face. But you know, he was able to live a sinless life. That's something that you and I are not able to accomplish. I've sinned. You've sinned. You know, God didn't create us for sin. The Bible teaches in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image and after his own likeness. When God created the first man, Adam and Eve, He stamped on them His spiritual image and likeness. He stamped it deep down on their soul. And you and I are still image bearers of the, of the image and the likeness of the God who created us. We're a very, very special part of God's creation. God didn't create the rocks, the plants, the animals in his own image. He created you and I in his own image. And he created man, the Bible says, to have dominion over all other forms of life on the earth. But what do we do? We let things in this earth, things in this world, we let earthly and worldly circumstances have dominion over us. 
and we give in to the deception and the deceitfulness of Satan, and we do things, we say things, we think things that are criminal in the sight of God. We sin. Sin is a problem. Sin separates us from God. God is a just and holy God. He has to punish sin. That's why Jesus is coming with a punishment someday for those who know not God and don't obey the gospel. God has to punish sin. Do you not expect the county sheriff here in Hale County to punish wrongdoers, to punish criminals? Do you not expect the judicial system of this county and this state and this country to punish those who do wrong? What would you think of a county sheriff or a judge who took all the murderers, all the rapists, all the thieves, all the cheaters in the whole county and, and lined them up and said, you know, just, just going to turn you all loose. Just go on your way. No punishment for you. We'd find us a new county sheriff and county judge right quick, wouldn't we? Why? Because we, we understand the importance of justice. We want justice. God we serve is a just God. Just like county sheriff and county judge have to punish those who break the law, God has to punish those who break his law. We're lawbreakers in the sight of God. That's why we're under condemnation, and that's why we deserve everlasting punishment and everlasting destruction. But you know, Jesus came and lived that perfect life that you and I could not live. He never sinned once. Never said a foul word, never thought a bad thought. He was able to do what I'm not able to do. He was the last person in the history of the world that deserved to die a criminal's death. The very last person in the history of the world. But you know, he died a criminal's death. They hung him on a cross. And he willingly went to that cross. And he didn't go there to pay the penalty for his sin or his crimes. He went there to pay the penalty for your sins and your crimes. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. He put himself in the place that we deserve to be. We deserve death because of our sin. And Christ stepped in and said, to save us, I'll take the penalty. I'll die on that cross. I'll take the nails in my hands and my feet. I'll take the spit in my face. I'll take the, thorn of, uh, the crown of thorns on my head. I'll take all that. to save people like you and me from the penalty of our sin. That's the beauty of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's what it means to you and I. That we don't have to be under God's condemnation and wrath any longer. Christ made a way for us to escape it if we choose it. We must choose it. He died, he was buried, he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel that's what saves us. The gospel is very, very powerful. The gospel is powerful enough to change lives. I've seen the gospel change people's lives. Has the gospel not changed your life? Those of you who heard it a long time ago and believed it and obeyed it maybe many years ago, sometimes I think we forget for whatever reason or we don't completely understand how much the gospel has changed our life. Romans 1.16 says, 
Paul writes here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Everyone. You know that everyone includes you. It includes me. If we put our faith in the gospel and obey it, that gospel is the saving power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen, I don't care how bad and sinful and wicked you've been in your, in your past life. I don't care how many sins you've committed. I don't care how vile and wicked and terrible they are. The blood of Christ is more powerful and the gospel is more powerful than your sin and mine. The gospel is powerful enough to save us and give us salvation from sin. I want to talk to you for just a moment tonight about the pathway to this salvation that has been secured for you and me by the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel's not going to do anything for you tonight if you don't believe it. First step down the pathway to God's salvation is you've got to believe that Jesus came. You've got to believe he lived that life. You've got to believe he went to that cross and died that death. You've got to believe they put him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Do you believe that tonight? I believe it. God says it in his word. I believe it. That settles it. God wants to save us. He wants to save us, and he will save us through the gospel. But, you know, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to believe the gospel. It says here that the gospel is the saving power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. If you hear the gospel tonight, but you say, I don't believe that. The gospel can't save you, friend. You've got to believe the gospel of Christ. Belief in the gospel of Christ motivates us to take the next step down the pathway to salvation, which is repentance. Repentance is a change of our heart and a change of our mind that results in a change of course or direction in our life. We've got to repent of our sin. Maybe in time past we got involved in sin and we really enjoyed it, enjoyed the pleasure of it, thought it was great. But when you come to the realization that God's only begotten Son, an innocent man, was tortured on a cross for that very sin that you and I enjoy so much, that ought to completely change our perspective. And if we truly believe the gospel, it ought to motivate this turning away from sin and turning toward God that we call repentance. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry about your sin. You know, many times, even people in the world who don't believe in God, many times they feel sorry about their sin because sin gets them in all kinds of trouble and gives them all kinds of problems. But listen, repentance is more than just being sorry for your sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. It's two different types of sorrow that are mentioned here in this verse. Godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world. The sorrow of the world 
The way the world gets sorry about its sin, they say, well, you know, I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm sorry I got to pay the consequences, and I'm sorry I got to go to prison, and I'm sorry I've lost my wife, and I'm sorry I've lost my kids, and I'm sorry I've lost my job. That's the sorrow of the world. And if that's as far as we go in feeling sorry for our sin, if we're just sorry about all the bitter fruit and trouble that we reap because of our sin, that's not enough to save us. The other type of sorrow that's mentioned here in this verse is godly sorrow. Let me tell you what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is this. I've sinned, and God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've hurt you. Not I'm sorry that I'm hurting and I'm suffering. I'm sorry that I hurt you and I let you down and your son suffered for that sin and I did it anyway. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow worketh or produces repentance to salvation. So here tonight when we talk about repentance, being sorry for our sin, it's not being sorry for ourselves. It's being sorry that Jesus had to suffer that torture on our behalf and die that terrible death for our sin. And it's being sorry that we let God down and we broke his word every single time we do sin. We've got to repent if we want to have salvation. The next step in the pathway to salvation is confession of faith in Christ. If we believe in Christ and believe His gospel in our heart, it's only natural that that belief comes forth in the form of a confession. We say what's in our heart, don't we? Jesus taught on that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, right? We say what's in our heart. If we like the Texas Tech Red Raiders, you know, we root really Loud for the Texas Tech Red Raiders. If we like Texas Longhorns, if that's in our heart, you know, that's who we cheer for, right? We say what's in our heart, and if we have true faith and belief in our heart, that should come forth in the form of a very simple confession. This confession is important. It's part of our, uh, it's part of our salvation. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we've got to believe the gospel. We've got to repent of our sins. We've got to make up our mind that we're turning away from sin from this point forward. And we've got to confess our faith in Christ. But you know, as we started tonight by looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we notice there that the gospel is for more than just believing. The gospel is for obeying. The question then becomes, how do we obey the gospel? How do we obey the death, the burial... The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people wonder that. They read in the Bible where, you know, if I don't obey the gospel, the Lord's coming back someday with a punishment. Well, how do we obey the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus? You know, the Bible gives us the answers to any question we might need to know to be saved. The Bible doesn't leave us guessing. 
leave us wandering. The Bible gives us clear teaching as to how we are to obey the gospel of Christ. The last step in the plan of salvation is receiving a scriptural baptism, being baptized or immersed in water for the forgiveness, for the remission of our sin. That's the culminating, the final step in the pathway to securing salvation. And as a matter of fact, that is just exactly how we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. The Bible says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You know, the Bible here gives us very plain and very simple teaching on how we obey the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To obey the death of Jesus, you've got to die with Christ. And the Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, as we read, that in water baptism, our old man is crucified with him. It said there in water baptism, we are baptized into his death. He died for you. You've got to die with him, and you die that death in baptism. To obey the burial of Jesus, you've got to be buried with Christ. And the Bible said there in Romans 6 and 4 that we are buried with him by baptism into death. He was buried for you. You've got to be buried with him. You accomplish that in water baptism. To obey the resurrection of Christ, you must be raised up to walk in a new spiritual life with Christ. And as we read there in Romans chapter 6, we come up out of that water of baptism raised to walk in newness of life. He was raised up to a new life, raised from the dead for you. He wants us to have that same type of spiritual resurrection, that new spiritual life. And we can have it when we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in water baptism. Let's keep reading in Romans chapter 6. We're going to skip ahead to verse 16. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that you were, you were, that's past tense, you were the servants of sin. You used to be. He writes to these Christians in Rome. He says, you used to be servants of sin. And you know the word servant here uh, could actually very well be translated slave. Some translations, I believe, translate it as slave. We were slaves to sin. But ye have obeyed 
from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. They were servants or slaves of sin. They obeyed from their heart a form of doctrine. And then verse 18 says, Because of that, being then made free from sin, ye became servants or slaves of righteousness. Now I want you to stop and think about this very, very carefully. They were servants of sin. They did something and they became servants of righteousness. What did they do? We read there that they obeyed from the heart a form of doctrine. What form of doctrine did they obey? They obeyed the gospel. They obeyed the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus in water baptism. If you notice on the screen behind me, before going down into that water, they were in their sin. But then being obedient to the form of doctrine, being obedient to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they come up out of that water saved from their sin. They were slaves to sin on one side of that, that water. On the other side, they're slaves or servants of righteousness. You see, there's a great change that ought to happen in our life when we're baptized. When God washes away our sin by the blood of Christ in baptism, that brings about a great change in our life. We, we no longer should be slaves to sin. We should be slaves or servants of righteousness. The teaching here of, of Romans chapter 6 is it's not complicated. It's very simple and easy for us to understand how we obey the gospel. We obey that death, burial, and resurrection in water baptism. Now some people today would reply by saying that baptism isn't necessary or it's not important. And, and therefore a lot of people say, well, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to be baptized. You know, the Bible talks about a group of people who had an, an attitude that was very similar to this. And they're described there in Luke chapter 7, verses 29 to 30. He's talking about uh, the Pharisees and the lawyers. In, John, in uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 7, verse 29, the Bible says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Notice here when these Pharisees and these, and these lawyers rejected baptism, the Bible says they rejected the counsel of God. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're listening to these words, and you see it so plainly and so clearly, but there's a, a piece of you inside that's saying, no, I won't do it. Listen, friend, don't reject the counsel of God like these Pharisees and like these lawyers did here in the Bible. Don't reject the counsel of God. Don't reject what God's Word teaches and tells us about the importance of receiving water baptism. Many people today will reply by saying, well... Obedience really isn't all that important. God just wants you to have a good heart. He wants you to have a good heart, and obedience 
to him and obedience to his word is secondary and not really important. What I would tell you tonight, friend, is that obedience is indeed important. Because the Lord's coming back to take vengeance on them who know not God and obey not or have a lack of obedience to the gospel of Christ. That makes obedience very important. In addition to that, we have scriptures such as Hebrews chapter 5, which teach us the importance of obedience. Obedience is complete submission to the will of God. What God says, I'm going to do it. No questions, no hesitations, no reservations. What God says, I'm going to do it. That's obedience. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. The Bible says, though he were a son, it's talking about Jesus, God's only begotten son. Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Did you know that Christ first learned obedience for himself before he ever asked for obedience from you or me? He first learned obedience for himself. He learned complete and total submission to the will of his Father in heaven. Verse 9, and being made perfect or complete, he, that's Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus wants to be the author of our eternal salvation. But the Bible teaches us here that for Christ to be the author of our eternal salvation, like the end of verse 9 says, we must obey him. Now, a person says, well, I, I won't obey Jesus. A person says, I refuse to obey Christ. I refuse to obey the gospel. Well, then Jesus cannot be the author of that person's eternal salvation. No matter how hard he wants that person to be saved, he cannot be the author of their eternal salvation until we trust him and until we obey him like the Scripture teaches Some people wonder today if there's any other possible way to obey the gospel. You know, is there some other way to get the job done? Do I really have to believe it? And do I really have to repent? Do I really have to make that confession? Do I really have to be baptized in water? People ask those questions and they say, Is, is there not some other way? that I can receive the blessings of salvation. Many good, honest, sincere people have asked those questions. I want to tell you something else. Many good, honest, and sincere people have been led to believe that they were saved by some other way without obeying the gospel. As I go about and do the work of an evangelist, uh, everywhere I go, whether it's here in Texas or Oklahoma or Arkansas or even in foreign countries. I've found, you know, a lot of people have a lot of different opinions and say a lot of different things about their own salvation. For example, I've heard people say, you know, Jesus saved me because I saw him or heard him in a dream. I had a dream of Christ or I heard his voice and he told me I was saved or I, I felt saved. So they have some other way 
by which they have come to salvation. Uh, sometimes a person will say, you know, Jesus saved me the first moment that I believed in him. The first moment I believed in him, I was saved, and, and I know I was saved. Uh, a lot of people today will say that, you know, Christ saved me when I prayed a prayer with a preacher, whether it was in a church building or whether it was over the radio or over the TV. I prayed a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. And when I did that, Jesus saved me. And look, maybe you're here tonight and your salvation story sounds a whole lot like one of these things I just described. And if that's the case tonight, friend, listen, I don't question your love and I don't question your sincerity, but I can't help but wonder whether or not you've truly obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ as we find it revealed in the Scriptures. And I hope you're open-minded enough tonight to take a second look at what God says in His Word and to see whether or not you've truly obeyed the gospel according to the Scriptures. This is serious business. This is very serious. Your soul is at stake. Getting this right matters. To get this wrong will have eternal consequences. The last part of this lesson, what I want to do is I want us to go and look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. I want us to look at the story about how he come to have salvation and be saved in Christ. We've talked a little bit about Saul's conversion throughout the week. It's found in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. We're going to read some scriptures, be reminded of the story of how the Apostle Paul himself come to salvation. Acts 9 and 3, the Bible says as he journeyed, he's on his way to a city called Damascus to find, arrest, and prosecute Christians just because they have faith in Christ, okay? As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I want you to take notice here, Saul has seen the risen Jesus, and has heard his voice, okay? He's had a very personal encounter with the resurrected Christ, and he's heard the voice of Jesus himself. We keep reading in verse 5. And he that Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. I would tell you at this point in Saul's conversion that he's a believer. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, he wasn't a believer in Christ and who Christ really was when he woke up this day. But having had this experience, this encounter with Christ, and speaking directly with him, Saul is a believer in Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. We keep reading in verse 7. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Paul had some companions with him. They stood speechless. 
They heard the voice but didn't see any man. In verse 8, And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. Saul has been blinded by this intense light. He can't see. He has to be led by the hand of these men who were with him. He can't see. He's been blinded. He don't know if he's going to see another day of his life. But the Bible says there in verse 9, verse 9, that he was three days without his sight in the city of Damascus, and neither did eat nor drink. He's fasting. Verse 10 says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he, Ananias, said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. The Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. What I want you to notice here at this point in the story, that Saul has brought forth fruit, meat for repentance. He has fasted. And he has prayed for three days in the house of a man named Judas who lived on Straight Street in the city of Damascus. Now, we'll stop the story right here for just a moment because what I want you to notice is this. By by most men's standards, Saul would have surely been saved by this point in the story. He saw the Lord and heard the Lord's voice. He believed That on Jesus, he repented, he prayed, he fasted. Surely that's enough to save a man from his sins. People would tell us that today, that surely Saul had been saved by now. But the Bible doesn't teach that Saul had been saved from his sins just yet. There's still something left for Saul to do. We skip down for time's sake into verse 17 there in the story. Acts chapter 9 verse 17. Ananias went his way and entered into the house, the house of Judas on Straight Street, and putting his hands on him, that Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. Saul received miraculous healing. He's blind. Ananias comes in and says, receive your sight. And he can see again. It was a miracle. It was a miraculous healing. I would tell you that in and of itself even was not enough to save him from his sins. He's not saved yet. The Bible says that he received sight forthwith, which means immediately, and he arose and was baptized. And when we go and study the story of Saul's conversion over in Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 22, verse 16. Now this is Saul telling the story himself. And listen to what Saul say, or Paul says happened when he got up and was baptized. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, 16, Paul recalled how the preacher Ananias told him, And now why tarriest thou? It means, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Even after everything that Saul had experienced, 
After seeing the Lord, after hearing His voice, after praying and fasting, after receiving miraculous healing, after all that, the preacher Ananias comes in and says, you still need a washing that will wash away your sins. You know what that implies? Saul was still in his sins. Even after all of this, Saul was still in his sins. But Ananias, the preacher, tells him what he needs to do to wash away those sins. He says, arise, get up. He says, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul wasn't saved when he heard the voice of the Lord. Hadn't obeyed the gospel yet. Saul wasn't saved when he had believed in Jesus. He hadn't obeyed the gospel yet. Saul wasn't saved when he repented and prayed. He prayed for three days. Three days of prayer wasn't enough to save Saul because he hadn't obeyed the gospel yet. When Saul received miraculous healing, he wasn't saved. He hadn't obeyed the gospel yet. But when Saul got up and did what Ananias told him to do, when he was baptized, his sins were washed away. He obeyed the gospel in baptism. And at that point, he was saved from his sins. You know... It's very simple. It's, it's not complicated. Man is actually the one who has complicated this matter altogether by inventing a lot of different unscriptural ways for people to be saved. But, but I'm here to tell you tonight, friend, there is no other way to be saved from your sin. No other way but by trusting in God and by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Saul did. There's no other way to die with Christ. There's no other way to be buried with Christ. There's no other way to be raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. No other way. But by obeying the gospel in baptism. And listen, regardless as to what you've tried to do in the past to be saved, you can obey the gospel tonight and be saved just like Saul. I want to tell you tonight, there are two different groups of people in this world. Those who have obeyed the gospel of Christ and those who haven't. Which group are you in today? 1 Peter 4 and 17. The Bible says the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall, be, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of, our, of, of God? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The Bible teaches us here it's time for us to stop, it's time for us to consider, it's time for us to judge whether or not we've truly obeyed the gospel according to the Scriptures. To carefully consider, the time is now to carefully consider what will be the end of me if I obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will be the end of you if you don't obey the gospel tonight and you know you need to? Sorry to say, friend, but Jesus is coming back, and he's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope and pray you'll let these words and these scriptures sink deep into your heart and deep into your mind. And listen, if you're here tonight, and you need the Lord, and you need to obey the gospel in baptism, 
I hope that you would consider yourself a very blessed individual tonight to have had opportunity to hear and understand the truth of God's Word. I hope you consider that a blessing, and I hope you weren't, won't close your ears or harden your hearts to what the Bible says tonight. I hope you'll let these things speak directly to you, to your heart and your situation. I don't know your situation. But I know that if you're here tonight and you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to do that. And if you desire to obey the gospel tonight, don't put that off till tomorrow. Do it tonight because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. In Acts 22:16, Ananias told Saul the, thing, the same thing I'm going to tell you tonight. Why wait? What are you waiting for? And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you're here tonight and you desire to obey the gospel or you need the prayers of the church for any reason, we're going to sing a song of invitation. That's your opportunity to stand up, to step out, to sit down here on the front pew and tell us you need the Lord and you need to obey the gospel. And if you can manage to do that tonight, we'll take care of the rest. We'll help you. We'll minister to you. We'll see that tonight you leave here with the salvation that you so desperately desire. If you need to respond to this gospel, please don't hesitate. Stand up, step out, come forward, have a seat on the front while we stand and while we encourage you with the song.